All right, uh, all righty. As the kids are shuffling out to their spots, I'll introduce to you today's speaker. It was four, no, five years ago that on Youth Sunday, there was this tall young man up there speaking from Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. And I'm scratching my head and thinking, what high school senior is preaching from Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology? Well, that high school senior is Campbell Bortle. Fast forward a few years, and as it turns out, Campbell, who's attending Cedarville University and studying geology, is that right? Geology, is praying about God's leading for his life and stuff like that. And I get a Facebook message to say, hey, Pastor Jeremy, I'm thinking about running uh, for student government to be the chaplain. And it's not really in my wheelhouse necessarily because I'm like in the science section with all the science guys. I'm not a Bible major, pastoral major, or anything else, but I'm feeling this tug. And he's praying about it and he follows through, speed it up a little bit, and all of a sudden Campbell every other week is speaking to 4,000 college students leading them to Christ. And so today, I have the pleasure and extreme privilege of introducing to you and being blessed and benefited by the ministry of Campbell Bortle. Well, man, good morning. It is really good to be here with you guys. Um, Man, this has been a place, a spiritual greenhouse for my growth Many of you have shown and been a major part of that developing by mentoring me, um, joining me as spiritual parents and family, brothers and sisters, truly showing me the gospel inheritance that I have being adopted into God's family. So it's good to be here, and we're going to be, we're going to be diving right back into this Mark series. So we're going to be jumping into Mark chapter 6. We'll be starting in verse 45, so if you want to begin working your way there, that would be awesome. Um, I really would encourage you to and open up God's Word this morning with me. I do not want to bring forward a message that is from my own words, but I want to show you the message that is in this text. Um, because ultimately, man, preaching God's Word is a little bit intimidating. Um, because, man, if I mess up in this, I am misspeaking the truth of what God has spoken. So I want to show you what it says and guide you in that process. But as we're working our way there, let me reminisce with you a little bit. As Pastor Jeremy said, it wasn't all that long ago. I was standing right here for the first sermon I ever preached, thinking I knew a lot of stuff. And then I went to college and started into a Bible minor and realized I didn't know anything at all and was very humbled. Um, And man, I'm grateful to God for that humility that he has given me. But he also gave me some opportunities to grow in training and to grow in confidence. And that's been a great encouragement to me. One of those opportunities was um, working with Next Step Ministries. So a few summers ago, I served on staff leading mission trips with students in Joplin, Missouri. There were nine mission trips that came there that summer, and I was speaking every night to these students, preaching from God's Word. And through that, there was a bunch of conversations that came up. And there's one that, man, it sticks out the most was with a leader, because the reality was um, not every group that came on these mission trips was a part of a church. Some of them were unchurched groups hoping to do service projects, but I still got to preach, and that led to some interesting conversations. Um, so I was talking with one of the leaders one evening and just trying to gauge what his beliefs were because I knew they were not a part of this church background. And we were wrestling through some big things, big questions he had about life, 
life and theology and philosophy, and he thought he was shooting over my head, and we kept talking and battling it out. And eventually I got to the end of it all, and I, I realized that this guy just said he believed in God so that he could maintain a reputation among people, but he wasn't really sure at all. He was agnostic. He, he did not know if there was God or if you could prove it. And he asked me this question, and it stands out, and I'll never forget it. He said, man, Campbell, how do you experience God? How do you see God as personal? You can't hear him or see him. You can't touch him. He's not here. So what is that like? Like, is it just inside your head? How do you experience God as personal? And well, this morning, I want to take you into this text in Mark chapter 6 to answer this question to show you that truly there is a God who is personal and powerful, and that has implications for our life. So let's begin by looking at God's Word, starting in this passage. We'll be in verse 45 of chapter 6 to start. So it says, Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. And when evening came... The boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when, he saw, when they saw him walking on the sea, they, they cried out, It was a ghost! For all they saw him, they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them, saying, Take heart. It is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Dear Lord, may we thank you for your word this morning, and that it is your spoken word delivered to us. Would you just meet us here? Whatever message you have for each one of us, including my own heart, continue to work in our lives and convict us that we may live differently because of this. Reveal to us that you are truly God and all-powerful and deeply personal. I pray that you'd speak through me in this, I pray. Amen. All right, so this morning, I have this main idea that I'm going to try to argue to you through the text. I want to show you it. And that is this, that God is deeply personal, that he is personally powerful and powerfully personal. That God is personally powerful and powerfully personal. And, and before we get there, I think we need to understand a little bit about how Mark works, right? Maybe you're aware that Mark is one of the four Gospels, which puts it into a historical narrative type of text. This is unique. It's not a letter arguing some type of thing, but it is a story outlining the life of Jesus. And Mark is really cool, and the Lord is also super sweet to use specific people that he has prepared to speak through them to write God's Word. It is inspired through individuals. So there's unique angles coming at it to proclaim a specific message. And Mark's angle is super fun because you could tell this guy is a storyteller. He has one of the most condensed Gospels. He has the shortest Gospel of the four, but it is jam-packed full of all of the events that are happening in Jesus' life. He tells them in super intriguing ways. He loves using phrases that draw you in and build on each other. And he uses this word over and over again, immediately. It's his favorite word because he's drawing you next. Immediately they went here. Immediately they did this. And, and, and. And it's exciting. But what happens then, because Mark is focusing on the story of Jesus, the message begins to come through the characters. 
It is emphasized in that way. And so this morning, that's where we're going to have to look. Because it is historical. This is true the way it is being spoken. It's, it's narrative. It happened. But the reality is, it's spoken in a specific way to reveal to us a specific message. So Mark begins to explain to us with this word immediately. It says that in verse 45 here, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. So if you remember, we were just at the scene last week where Jesus feeds the 5,000. It's another insane miracle where Jesus says, man, we're out in the wilderness and all these people are hungry and they're going crazy, stir crazy, and it's getting late. And the disciples say, how are we going to feed them? And Jesus says, you guys are going to be brought into this miracle and we're going to feed these people. And so Jesus feeds the 5,000 using the disciples. And it's an incredible display. And immediately we jump into this place where Jesus says, man, I need some time and space alone. So he sends the disciples out into a boat. It says he made them get into the boat. And then he goes up on the mountain to pray. This is the first moment that we see a first piece of our main idea this morning, that God is powerfully personal. And Jesus displays this firstly through his relationship with the Father. And we, let's think about this. Jesus goes up on a mountain. He, he, he moves to a place of seclusion alone to spend hours petitioning the Lord, to just spend time praying, speaking to his Father. And then if Jesus is God, and we'll get to that later on in the text, but if Jesus truly is God, that means he's perfect and that every single thing he does maximizes God's glory. And so that means that this moment of him going off alone to just spend time in prayer was the thing in that moment that would bring God the most glory. And man, does that set an example for us? What an incredible example, because that means that prayer is not just powerful. It is not just good, but it could be the very thing in your day that brings God the most glory. Men, are, are we praying like that? Is that how we are praying in our lives? Because if the God of the universe, Jesus, is praying and spending time and taking that intentional moment, then we need to be doing that too. But man, I have this unique moment where I'm up here and I'm not your pastor, but I have had some ministry experience. And so I, I want to give you guys a specific way to be praying this week, today, this year. Because there are so many ways. God, in prayer, I mean, we can petition his heart and, and ask for requests to see his, his word go forth and the gospel being spread. We can confess the sins and, and rid ourselves of those to be living in truer light. We can sometimes come into moments of prayer where it's just agony and silence because we don't know what's happening and we just need God's presence to be there. And it says in scriptures that the Holy Spirit just lets forth groans on our behalf. I mean, prayer is powerful, but man, a way that I can say this morning, and I would encourage you to pray specifically, is for your pastors. This past year, I got to serve as the SGA chaplain, as was mentioned before. Every other week, I was preaching to all of these students, and it was an incredible experience. But the reality was, the moment that I was elected into that position, man, Satan was mad. He did not want the ministry to work. There was a target that went on my back. And man, I, it became so cyclical to experience this warfare that, man, every Wednesday night before a message, I remember just feeling overwhelmed. And it was almost predictable that in the evenings of Wednesdays, I would be drained. I would have no motivation. I, something would go wrong. Other things would get added to my plate and I couldn't sleep. And I was so confused. Why is this happening on all these Wednesdays? And I realized it was Wednesdays before sermons. 
That was my night of final preparation, of spending time in prayer over the message, preparing for what would come Friday to preach to these students. And man, Satan didn't want that to go well. Well, think about our pastors who have stepped into this role full time. This is their life's work. This is what they're doing on a daily basis. The target is even bigger because if you take out the leader of a church, imagine what happens to the rest as it follows. There's chaos, confusion, and Satan doesn't want that to work. So we need to be spending time in prayer for our pastors. Because as we pray in any form, in any capacity to see God's ministry go forth, we get to understand and see more of how God answers prayer, and that develops our relationship with Him. As He moves here and says yes to these things and no to these things, we see what God wants us to be pursuing and what He's doing, and that grows our relationship. God is deeply personal. He is powerfully personal. Another way that we see this, because there are more that are in this text, let's keep going. We see that Jesus reveals that he is powerfully personal by coming to the disciples in a time of struggle. Right? So the disciples have been sent out into this boat. He sends them there, and he sees them making headway painfully late at night. If they were dismissed in the evening, it says Jesus came in the fourth watch of the night, which is between 3 and 6 a.m., they could have been paddling for nine hours painfully. They're not even there yet. This is a journey that wasn't supposed to take even half that long. And it's, it's wild. So Jesus comes to them. It says in verse 48, Jesus comes to these people, his disciples, in a time of struggle. He chose to be present with them in their struggle. In verse 51, we see that Jesus doesn't just come to see them, but he enters into their boat. He got into the boat with them. I mean, this is wild. Jesus is powerfully personal. He's not avoiding the conflicts and the hard stuff that's happening in these, these lives of his friends, but he joins them in the midst of that moment. And this is very true of our God today as well. Man, think about this. For all of those who are true, genuine believers of Jesus Christ, God has sent his spirit to indwell them. These, this is the spirit of the living God is inside you if you're truly a believer. I don't know if you get how crazy that is. I don't know if that settled in for you. I, I once heard a story that there was a, a kid who came to his pastor. He says, I've got all these questions. I'm so excited to go to heaven someday and ask all these people I'm reading about in the Bible questions. And the pastor's like, whoa, 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 slow down. Like, what questions do you even have? Like, what, what do you want to ask? And he said, man, I want to go to Moses. And I want to ask him, what was it like to see God, just see him pass by when he was up on Mount Sinai, when he was getting the Ten Commandments? What was it like to see God as a human on earth? And the pastor says to his kid, man, I think he's going to tell you it was awesome, but he's going to have a question for you. He's going to say, man, it was great, sure, to see God, but man, I just got to see the back of his head. But what was it like to live with God inside you? What was it like to truly live with the God of the universe, all of that power and the guiding Holy Spirit inside you? And this is perspective that I think we sometimes lose. I think we sometimes miss this. Man, this is the God of the universe. He is with you. He's comforting you in the face of no matter what is in front of you. He is the counselor and the guide of our lives. He's in control of our circumstances because he is God and he has enough power to defeat sin and any struggle that we're facing and confront it. And he is so powerful that everything that happens in our lives, he seeks to use for our good. 
all of the struggles and trials that are there, he's using them to develop our faith to make it stronger and to sometimes rub a callus that we have before God so raw that we can finally feel him and see that he is there. He uses all things for our good. And then notice that Jesus does the same thing in our story in Mark this morning. Jesus sends them into the struggle to reveal himself to them. I don't know if you noticed that, but he says he made them get into the boat. He sends them off intentionally. Why? Yes, so he could spend time with the Father, but also so that he can come and join them and reveal this comforting personal God that is there with them. Jesus is deeply personal. He's powerfully personal. But he also comes and uses these commands and says, Do not be afraid. Take heart. Take courage. And on what grounds can he make those claims? In the midst of a struggle in a moment that's hard, where they're terrified thinking there's a ghost in front of them, what grounds does he have to command people to take heart and not be afraid? And that is based on his power. And that's the second point of the passage this morning, that God is personally powerful. We see that God is personally powerful and powerfully personal, but he justifies the second piece with his power. He says both, both of those words are essential, by the way, his and power. It is not just some power that is there, but it also is the one whose identity the power belongs to. Let's look back at verses 48 through 50 here. And it says this, And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And this is is wild. I don't know if you caught this moment. It's not really mentioned in any of the other Gospels in this way specifically. But it says that Jesus meant to pass by them. And then he goes on to proclaim these three phrases that have been mentioned before. You know, do not be afraid. Take heart. It is I. Each one of those. This is truly the crux of the passage. And so I don't want you to miss this because it sounds a little confusing. It sounds like, man, Jesus, was he just out on a stroll on the lake? And then he meant to like walk by them. But like he's also going to be with them. What's happening here, right? Is he trying to scare them, like sneak up on them? Like, I don't think that's what's happening. Right? It's, it's intentional. It says he meant to pass by them. So what is this language pointing to? Because like I said, the way that Mark tells his stories is often using and comparing different elements to show us this message more deeply. So the wording is intentional. And that phrase, to pass by, is so specific. Because this is language used in the Old Testament. This is meant to hearken back to an image that comes with a theophany. Right, so theophany is this big word that I didn't know before the sermon either, so I'm going to fill you in. Right? Theophany is a moment in Scripture, as described by theologians, where people, humans, encounter the living God. It is a crazy moment. The one we talked about already was this Exodus 33 one. And so let's go there because, man, I think there's some comparison being drawn. So in Exodus 33, 
we see in verses 13 and moving on that there's this moment where Moses is going up to Mount Sinai and he gets the Ten Commandments. He comes back down to the people and they have formed a golden calf and are worshiping an idol. And he is outraged, drops the Ten Commandments and says, I'm going back up on the mountain to petition for repentance on the behalf of the people of God because what have we done? And he goes up and he spends time with God. And in Exodus 33, verse 13, we find this moment. Now, therefore, if I've found favor in your sight, says Moses, please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And the Lord says to him, my presence will go with you, Moses, and I will give you rest. And then Moses says, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring me up from here. Do not bring us up from here. You see the significance of this moment. Moses recognizes that if he does not have God's presence, if God's presence is not with him, then they have nothing. They're lost. These people who are worshiping a golden calf with a few days of missing out on this, man, they are gone. So they need the presence of God. He understands the significance of this. And it continues on there into verse 18. And Moses says, please show me your glory, Lord. I need to see your presence. And he said, I will make my goodness pass before you. This is what the Lord says. Do you hear this language? I will make my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim before you my name is the Lord. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of a rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will take away my hand, but you can only see the back of my head because if you saw my face, you would drop dead is what the Lord goes on to explain. And this is wild. Let's compare and contrast these stories, right? In one moment, we have Moses going up to Mount Sinai to encounter God, and God promises, I will give you rest, and I will give you my presence. And to show that this is true, he passes by Moses. He passes by him to show and reveal his glory. And then in another moment, we have the disciples in a boat, and Jesus joins with them with his physical presence. And then he calms the sea, giving them rest from their struggle out here. And he passes by them. And this is the language that Mark is using. There is a comparison being drawn that is powerful. There are several other places in the Bible that explain this language. But probably the best one is also in Job chapter 9 verses 8 and 11. It says, Who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea? Behold, he passes by me. And I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Job is saying, who alone but God can stretch out the heavens? Who alone but God can walk on the seas, can trample on them? Behold, he passes by me. The same phrase. And I do not perceive him. And we have the disciples in this exact moment. Man, Jesus wasn't just doing some miracle to show that he was powerful. He wasn't just doing some miracle to show that he had power connected to God. He was doing a miracle to show that he was God. He was revealing that he's not just personally powerful, but he is God powerful. And this is wild. Jesus goes on to kind of develop this by proving it in several other ways. The first was walking on water. He's literally walking out here, which we already heard goes back to that language in Job and hearkens on that image. But he he also reveals his power by calming the storm. So we see this, this moment where Jesus shows his power over creation that only God has. But beyond this, he also speaks like God. He is talking like God. 
The first way we see that is by how he commands them to not be afraid. He says, do not fear. Do not be afraid. We see that in verse 50, he does this, and he justifies this by saying his presence is there. He says, do not be afraid. It is I. I am here. This is how he justifies this command. But this reminds us of this language way back in the Old Testament also. In Deuteronomy 31.8, it is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Therefore, do not be afraid and be dismayed. Or Joshua 1.9, as we read earlier, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Why? Because the Lord is with you wherever you go. Isaiah 41, passage where Pastor Jeremy read a little further on. Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. Jesus is doing the exactly same thing. He's commanding these people, his disciples, to not be afraid and justifying it with his presence. This is God standing before them, and that's the point. That's what is being gotten at here. But they, they saw they see him with him, and, and they don't understand. They were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them, saying, man, take heart, it is I. And, and this, this phrase, it is I, in, in the original language is ego eimi, okay? Which that can be rendered, it is I, or I am. I don't know if you would catch that because it's a subtle thing that's woven in there, but it's super intentional. And maybe that's an Old Testament thing that we can all remember and hearken back to. That's straight out of Exodus 3, where we see that Moses is coming to the burning bush, and and he's saying, man, how am I going to go and speak to these people? I don't know if I can do this. There's, There's these people. What do I say to them? Who should I say has sent me? And God says, tell them that I am has sent you. Because I am who I am. This is the name of God that he gives Moses to declare to Israel for the first time. It's wild. And Jesus says, take heart. I am. Do not be afraid. He is the proof. He is passing before them, walking on waters, revealing in every way that he is God. This is God. This is no fluke miracle. This is all intentional to proclaim to his disciples his very power. God is personally powerful and powerfully personal. But man, if we don't see that last piece about the disciples, we're missing the rest of the story, right? There's other characters involved here. And so we must see that the disciples respond in a specific way. And that happens in verses 51 and 52. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Man, what happens? Man, we see that these passages have been linked. This loaves goes back to the, five, the, the loaves and fish that were set out in this miracle to feed the 5,000. And we're saying, man, what is he talking about the loaves? Like, he just walked on water. What's going on here? But the reality is these stories are being linked to say, man, Jesus was in this moment with the disciples and he says, man, let me bring you into this miracle so you can see it for your own eyes who I am. And they miss it. And they get into this boat and he sends them off and says, man, go out there. And he knows that when he comes, he's going to return and reveal to him. He's walking on water, showing his power of recreation. He's speaking as though he was God, using the name of God. And he gets there and they miss it again. It says their hearts were hardened. They were astounded at the power, but they could not conceive of a God who was personal enough to be there with them. It didn't fit their bill of who the Messiah was. 
So I have to ask this morning, man, is it possible that your heart is hardened? Is it possible that my heart is hardened, that our hearts are hardened in any way? Because this is significant. When that happens, we see that they miss the whole thing. They miss who Jesus was. They miss this moment. And Jesus doesn't reveal it in this clear, concise way of saying, I am God and just laying it out there. I think it's so important to note that because he leaves room for faith. The disciples have to initiate this faith to believe that this is the God before them. And it's the same for us. So in what ways are our hearts hardened? The disciples, they were blinded by fear. They, they were afraid of this ghost that was before them. They didn't know what was going on. They're also blinded by preconceived notions of what they thought the Messiah was going to be. So here's the real question that we need to get at, and I really want you to reflect on in your own mind and heart is, man, how is your end of the relationship with God going? Like, how is your relationship with God going right now? Because if God is personally powerful and powerfully personal, then he is after a relationship with you. And that has insane implications. Because if the all-powerful God wants to be in a relationship with you, man, then we can stand here and sing that our God is greater and that he's greater than anything that we are facing, including the sin and, and all of the junk in this world, and that he's came to make it better and fix that. And there's belief that we can put forth to jump into this relationship with him. So man, how is your end of the relationship going? Here's an illustration that might help. I think of a long-distance dating kind of relationship, right? And at one point in time, all that was available was to be able to send letters back and forth. Maybe you remember a time like that. I don't. But if you're in this relationship and it's long-distance and all you have are letters, you're sending letters, receiving them, and reading them, and your relationship is growing, and, and it's awesome. But what happens if you just stop reading the letters, or if you stop sending the letters, what, what goes on? Does your relationship continue to grow? Does it just stay constant and stagnant and just keep on the same plane it was? Or does it deteriorate and begin to fall apart? I think we would all say, man, if you're just not communicating at all, your relationship is going to fall apart completely. It's not going to stay the same. I, I think some of us are treating our relationship with the Lord like this. Man, we jumped into like a dating relationship with the Lord because it was exciting and there was a lot of joy and there was these butterflies on the front end and it was super cool. And we're on this mission trip high, but all of a sudden something got hard and we had to put work into the relationship and, and we had to spend time in his word and, and something that happened in our lives didn't go the way we thought it would because we were walking with God. Something goes wrong and we're like, what is going on? But the reality is we're, we don't know God well enough at that point in time to see that he's able to work and trust that he's able to work in those situations. We're blinded by our fears of what this is and our preconceived notions of who God should be and how he should answer our prayers because we expect he should answer him the way we want him to be answered. Maybe you have these preconceived notions. Maybe you think that God is going to work in a certain way. Or maybe... This relationship started well for you, and it's just become super cerebral. I know there's a lot of scientists in Midland. I understand that. But man, when we open this book, and if, if you just start diving in and studying it and learning it and entering knowledge into your mind and knowing all the theological jargon and all this stuff, man, it doesn't matter if you don't have a relationship that's thriving. If nothing changes in your life, then what's the point of knowing a bunch of stuff? 
Has it become a cerebral game for you to just, just maybe you walk in and you hear it, man, there's a guy preaching or I'm listening to a sermon over a podcast and you're like critically analyzing how the speaker's going about every point and man, is he speaking this perfectly and he could have used this word here. Man, there's a bigger theology term. Like, like what, what, is the, what is the point of that if when you walk out on Sunday, man, your heart isn't changed at all? If you just come in and say, man, my relationship with God, it started in my justification. That, that point where I put my faith in Christ, that's all the gospel was good for. But man, the rest of this life, like I can just coast. That's it. Like that, that is not, that's making the gospel so cheap and, and you're missing it. Like Jesus did not just die for your justification in the moment of the gospel for you to be saved. Man, he died for your sanctification too. And he wants to be in a relationship with you, moving forward in this life for eternity. He says, man, I want that kind of relationship with you because I know it's so much better than anything else in this whole world. And you keep going to this sin or this cerebral game, but man, I just want your heart. I just, I just want you to love me. I just want you to meditate on this, this word that I wrote to you. Man, Jesus sent us, God wrote us a letter in this long-distance relationship we currently have because we're not in heaven in the presence of him. And some of us are, are not reading it. And some of us aren't spending time in prayer speaking back to God. We're, we're missing out on those opportunities. But man, maybe there's another category where sin is getting in the way of your relationship. And, and the sin is kind of in this gap between you and God because you know that if you go any deeper in your relationship with God, then you're going to get convicted of that sin. And so you don't want to go there. You love your sin more than you love God. That's what you're saying. And that, that's crazy to me to think that we, I, I, I'm not saying I'm not part of this either. Like I'm not standing up here saying, oh, I'm 22 years old. I got to figure it out. Like my relationship with God's perfect. It's not what's going on. You know what I mean? Like, there's room for every single one of us to grow. And man, maybe this morning it's a sin that's standing in the way. Maybe you're not moving forward in your relationship with God because you're just afraid of being convicted in the first place. You don't even want to get to a point where you're being convicted because you know you're not perfect. You're human. And this, there's so many reasons that our relationship with God can be just fractured and, and not growing. And look, if any of this is really resonating with you, I, I don't want to sugarcoat this. There's a strong chance that you are like the disciples and missing the whole point. It's about a relationship with a God who is powerfully personal and personally powerful. This God has the power to eradicate this sin. He has the power to reveal to you this cerebral game that you want to play and go as deep as you want and challenge it in his word. But man, it needs to impact our hearts. It needs to come into our lives and change us. We see, man, the gospel is just as necessary on day 1,000, on your you know, 89th year of living this life as it was on day one you became a believer. And we need to act like that's true. We need to live as though that is a reality. Jesus didn't just die to free us from sin and punishment we deserve. He wants us in an eternal relationship with him. It's fully complete, fully fulfilling, and it has the deepest satisfaction you'll ever find. To think anything else is making the gospel cheap. So I want to go back to the story because I think it's super important that you hear how this, the story from the beginning of the message concludes. This, this guy comes to me at Next Step and he says, man, how do you see God as personal? How do you experience God in that kind of way? And man, by God's grace, there was an answer that was brought to my mind and heart in that moment. And I began with, I went and got my Bible. And I said, 
dude, like, God wrote me a book. And I, I believe this is the inerrant, infallible word of God. It is his spoken word to me. It is, is the very words of God. So I can hear God speak to me whenever I put my nose into this book and read its words saying. Beyond that, God also works in my life through prayer. I can pray after why, what I want to see happen in this world as I continue to you know, just see what God's doing for the kingdom. I could pray that more be done for that. I can pray and petition for things to happen around me and see how God answers. And then sometimes he answers those prayers in the ways I expect, and sometimes he doesn't. And I grow in this relationship seeing his heart more clearly. And he's answered prayers in some powerful ways in my life. But thirdly, and I think most importantly, like unlike any other religion in the entire universe, there is there's a God that I believe, and this word attests to it, that he told me that, man, he sent, he came to earth in the form of a man. He made it that personal. God took on flesh to dwell among us. That's what scripture says. And he lived a life of perfection that I could never live. And then he died a death that I deserved. And while on that cross, the full wrath of God, the punishment that I deserve, is being outpoured on him. And Jesus says, man, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead because he didn't just die, he rose again to prove that he was God. And said, man, now, man, if you put your faith in that work that I have done, man, there's a substitution that can be made. You could take my place and be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Man, God is so personal. He wants a relationship. He wants your heart. God is personally powerful and powerfully personal. So how will we live differently this week, knowing that we have access to this God in a personal way? Maybe it's starting that relationship for the first time. Maybe you're realizing that, man, I haven't had a relationship at all, and I thought I was really a Christian and living this life, but there's no sign of a relationship going on. Maybe today's the day you're saying, I'm all in. I'm, I'm going to be living for the Lord in a relationship with him. Or maybe it's getting rid of one of those sins or quitting the cerebral game and seeking the heart of God, meditating on his word, memorizing it, putting it in your heart, spending time in prayer and working on your relationship because relationships do take work. Man, if you haven't done that, I just would encourage you would. So many people in this room would be willing to talk with you about that, including myself. And I want to kind of close with this verse from 2 Corinthians 3.18. This is Paul. This is what he says about beholding God and seeing him and spending time meditating with him and getting to know this God. He says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord in his word, in prayer, in all of these ways, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And that Spirit is inside you if you believe in God. All right, so I'm going to let you in on a tradition here. Every single sermon since SGA, working as student government, I've ended with a poem, and that's because of a book I read by John Piper. John Piper wrote this book. It's called Seeing Beauty and Saying Beautifully, and he explains that if you can, ex it can write something in a poetic way, speak it in a poetic way, a beautiful way, then you will understand the beauty more deeply. So I set out as a mental exercise to write poems of the passages and of the sermons that I was preaching as a mental exercise to understand the beauty of the text more deeply and to communicate it to others. And eventually I got sucked into this thing where I began reading them and no one wanted me to stop, and so here I am. 
So this morning, my conclusion is this poem to you of this passage. And just reflect on everything that has been said this morning and what it means for you in your own heart as you leave today. God became flesh and dwelt among men. This is not a fictional story that anyone could pen. His name, it is Jesus, a powerful Lord. He could walk on the waters, calm storms with a word. He showed us he was the I am and commanded fear not, then joined as companion in their struggling spot. He is powerful and personal, creator and friend. With faith in this God-hardened hearts, he does mend. So how is your relationship? Is it personal? Is it growing? He wants to pass by you like the disciples he's showing. His presence and power, they are blessings through his spirit. Your cerebral game, preconceived notions, and sin sickness, he can heal it. So invest into your relationship. Read his letter from abroad. And from one degree of glory to another, let us behold our God. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for your word and the ways that you're working in our lives. I pray that as you continue to reveal yourself to us through the preaching in this church, through our personal time spent with you in the word, through prayer, that, man, your glory would be shown in such a way that we can become more like you from one degree of glory to another as we behold our God. May we not take this relationship lightly. May we not seek to coast in any way. But, man, may we take it seriously from this day forward getting rid of anything standing in the way, any burden or encumbrance or any sin or anything that stops us from growing in our relationship with you. Lord, I pray that that would be true of each and every one of us. And man, if there's someone in this room who has not entered into that relationship with you, I pray that today would be the day it begins. It is in your name that I pray. Amen.